0: Is it exactly in the middle? (laughs) Just a little obsessive compulsive. Let me know if it needs to go left or right. I can't tell you how excited I am to be here. My wife, Cheryl, sitting over here. uh, What a joy. What a joy to see what God has done over the years. It's just been phenomenal to watch and be involved in it, part of it. And uh, super excited about the purchase of the L and all that's going to be happening in the future. So, again, uh, thank you all. Absolutely love Doug and, and Natalie. Uh, they're just a huge joy uh, to our hearts. And just so many of you uh, we know and have grown to love and appreciate. So, as Doug mentioned, we are looking at uh, an incredible sum. Uh, we looked at the life of David, and now we're looking at some of the Psalms of David. Uh, at Central Campus, we did Psalms 1 and 2. You did Psalm 1, I believe. I don't know if you did Psalm 2. That's sort of the introduction to the whole Psalter. And now we've been looking at some of the Messianic Psalms of David. So just a real quick view, because the one we're looking at today, Psalm 24, is a Messianic Psalm. In other words, it's all about It's all about Jesus, okay? Uh, My Hebrew professor at Dallas Theological Seminary said that every Psalm in the whole Psalter finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But these Messianic Psalms especially do. So if you were to look at Psalm 22, a Messianic Psalm, uh, it would talk about uh, going through spiritual sacrifice and suffering. Uh, spiritual suffering and emotional suffering and physical suffering and the answer to that kind of suffering is in the Messiah, is in Jesus. So I might call that the good shepherd psalm, Psalm 22. Psalm 23 would be the psalm of the great shepherd and in Psalm 23 it's all about how God provides and how he directs and how he protects and Psalm 24 the one we're looking at today would be perhaps called the chief shepherd. And it answers one of the most important questions in all of life. And that question is this, what must I do to enter into the very presence of God? And you you think as you're looking at these psalms, you're going, man alive, this this Messiah is incredible. God is fantastic. What is it going to take to actually enter into the presence of God? So that's a question that's, that's answered in this psalm. And so for many of you, you're aware. I mean, you look at the at the duck boat disaster that just took place a month ago. I mean, 17 people, in an instant, 17 out of 31 people just die like that. Or just on the news the other day, here's this guy that uh, takes an airplane, does somersaults, and, and just crashes. And the, the pastor that influenced my life, Don Tab, some of you know, for years and years, he's been my mentor, and uh, he was just in a fishing accident, they, they took their boat with a couple of other friends, took the boat down to the mouth of the Mississippi where it empties into the Gulf in a 28-foot fishing boat and a rogue wave flipped the whole boat upside down and Dontab drowned, the person who led him to Christ drowned, only one person survived. And so life happens like that, or sometimes maybe it's it's cancer or a heart attack or a car wreck. And then what's going to happen if you stand before God and you have to answer that question? If he were to ask you, well, why should I let you into my presence? Why, why should you have a relationship with me? Why should I let you into heaven? Well, this psalm answers that question. And so let me give you a real quick review. It's a pretty short psalm. There's, it's, there, there's not a lot of verses to it. But basically in the first two verses, what he's going to say is this, that every external is going to be eliminated. Uh, In other words, God is not owned by any class or any sect or any race. Uh, There is a type of person who will be able to stand in the presence of God, but it's not going to have anything to do with worldly or human or religious or social effort. All of that is going to be absolutely eliminated. But then in the next four verses, three to six, what David is going to do is underscore here that to enter into the presence of God really involves something that's internal rather than external. And then finally, in verses 7 to 10, so you, I'm going to tell you up front, you've got to hang with me until we get to verses 7 to 10, because it's a messianic psalm, and this is where the Messiah... Is, is introduced, because you might get a little frustrated in those first few, four, few verses, okay? So let's look quickly at the first couple of verses, how externals are eliminated. And in these first two, uh, David is going to make a propositional statement with some wonderful conclusions to this propositional statement. So if you have your Bible, make sure you're at Psalm 24. Look at Psalm 24. Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So what he's basically saying, and, and I love the songs, those last two songs that we, that we sang, because really the message of those two songs really is like walking through uh, Psalm 24. You know, how all creation sings the praise, and so likewise we're going to do it too. And that's Psalm Uh, Psalm 24 verses 1 to 2. Every living thing ultimately is born out of the creativity of God. In other words, there's one God and there's one ecosystem and everything in it exists and has its being because of the benevolence of a very good and right and loving God who is eternal and sovereign. He's the creator. He's the landlord. He is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, and we are the creatures of his pasture. Acts 17. You might want to write that down. Acts 17, 24 to 25. It says, God made the world and everything in it. This is Paul. God made the world and everything in it. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So basically, we're the creatures of his pasture, and so therefore, what he's saying here is that there's really not a God of the Arabs or a God of the Jews or a God of the Christians or a God of Native Americans. There is only one God, and he made everything, everyone, and everything in the world. So there, I, I believe there are a couple of, of things that this, these two verses remind us of. And I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that clearly we are stewards in this world and we're not owners in this world. In other words, God owns absolutely everything. He owns everything that you possess. You know, the Bible says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, not only does he own the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns your TV, and he owns your computer, and he owns your car, and he owns owns everything that you have. And if he doesn't want you to have something that you think you possess, then the natural response would be, you need to get rid of it really quickly. And and we've had to do that ourselves. There are things that I have thought I have possessed, and it was clear that God, God didn't want... Uh, me to have it or he had something far better for me to do with it and I had to get rid rid of it real quick. And what that does is bring an incredible sense of humility that it's God's, it's not mine and I need to do what's pleasing in the sight of God. If I think it's mine, that creates this feeling of arrogance and pride and pride goes before destruction. Pride is what thinks that I control it, it's mine, I control it, I own it, and I have dominion over it. But this passage just blows that out of the water. As a matter of fact, John, John the Baptist said in uh, John 3 27 a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So I think this is why it should be very easy for a Christian to be able to give, and to be able to give sacrificially, generously, and bountifully. And I think if a person really does struggle with giving, I think it's probably because they don't understand that God owns what you think you possess, and uh, we're merely stewards of that. Uh, Occasionally, I'll check in and find out what the Cubs are doing, and uh, so I have a little vested interest to keep track of that. And so I was super excited to find out that that the Cubs had had traded for Cole Hamels. And I, I think Cole, I think he's pitching tonight, I believe. And what's cool about Cole Hamels is he's an incredible Christian guy, just a wonderful – I mean, Ben just loves this guy. He's a tremendous man of God. And, uh, of course, he pitched for the Texas Rangers for a long time. And so I got online. I did a little research on Cole Hamels, and it was so interesting to me that uh, – Cole and his wife had built the house of their dreams in Branson, Missouri. It was a nine million, at the time they built it, it was nine million dollars. They built it on 104 acres, up in the mountains, over, over a lake, on, on the side of a lake. And uh, all of a sudden beca- they became aware of the fact that this camp by the, it was Camp Barnabas is the name of it. And uh, it was a camp for special needs and chronic illness uh, kids. And they approached them in order to give, and they said, you know what? It's not ours anyway, and we have more than enough, and gave this a 31,000 square foot home, and just donated the whole house. Don- they had just built it, donated the whole thing to Camp Barnabas in order for them uh, to be able to move, move into it. So that's the attitude. It's not mine. It's not ours. In other words, as believers, we've got to acknowledge that that we are managers. We're not possessors. See, God owns it all. We manage it. We don't possess. We're stewards of something, but we're not owners of anything. We're distributors, but we're not controllers. Pride controls. Grace distributes. And so what this passage is telling me, it's answering this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What what do I have to do to enter into the presence of God? What I am going to realize from this passage is it has nothing to do with my achievement or my heritage or my religious affiliation or my external effort. None of that will help me enter into the presence of God. So then those are the first couple of verses. In the next four verses, three, four, five, and six, he says, if it's not something external, then What is it? He's saying it's internal. And so here's the verse specifically, verse 3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then verse 4 answers it very specifically. There are three things. We'll look at each one of these three things. The ones who will stand in his holy place, the ones who will have access to the presence of the Lord, have these three things. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, And I'll just say a truthful or a holy tongue. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing. In other words, rather than being guilty, he'll receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. So let's look at these three qualities that separate someone who receives the blessing versus the guilty verdict. Let's look at these three qualities. He says the first thing is the ones who will enter into the presence of God will have clean hands. In other words, that's the person who doesn't have their hands balled up like a fist and they're not lashing out in anger at other people. Those those are dirty hands. Those aren't clean hands. Or, for example, if my my hands, all they do is grasp and cling to and refuse to share uh, with those who are in need, Uh, Those hands are not clean hands. Those hands are dirty hands. Or if my hands are hands that will fondle another man's wife, those are dirty hands. Those aren't aren't clean hands. Or if my hands are hands that will point and gossip, or or if my hands are hands that will cup the ear to hear the slander of other people, then those hands are dirty hands. They're not clean hands. Uh, I, don't, and I don't care how externally religious I am. I mean, I could have been baptized, confirmed. I could be a, a member ad nauseum. But I'm dirty before God. So that's the first one, clean hands. And then he says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And secondly, he says, a pure heart. And he says, look, look, it's an internal kind of a thing. And it doesn't matter if you've gone through feasting and the fasting and kept all the diet codes, you've been <laughs> baptized, you've been confirmed. All of that stuff is just on the external, outside of the cup. But if there hasn't been an internal heart of conversion, conversion if there hasn't first uh, come a coming to God out of an impoverished spirit, As a spiritual pauper to God, hungering and thirsting for his righteousness, I'll never enter into the presence of God. It would be like the Luke 18 passage, you know, where where the tax collector came to God, you know, beating his breast, you know, on his knees before God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the picture of a pure heart. He doesn't lift up his soul to an idol. He has an impoverished spirit before God. Clean hands, pure heart. Thirdly, who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? That's a person who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, doesn't swear deceitfully. That person can enter the presence of God. So I don't know if you're noticing it, but what this text is answering, this text is, is simply answering the question, how is a person saved in the Old Testament? The answer to that is a person is saved in the Old Testament exactly like a person is saved in the New Testament. Well, how's a person saved in the New Testament? Well, it's by turning in repentance from his or her own righteousness and, and good works, and it's to turning to in faith the grace of God as shown through his son, Jesus Christ, as he gave his life for us on the cross. That's salvation in in, in the New Testament. Salvation in the Old Testament is exactly the same. It's by turning from your own righteousness, by repenting, trusting God to save him or her out of God's own mercies. It's the same thing. The difference is this. The body of faith that you put your trust in is so much more further developed in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. When you think about just Adam himself, Adam merely trusted in the shed blood of a lamb. He trusted God to save him for that. Now, you and I, from the context of the New, New Testament, we under, it's so much more fully developed. We understand that the lamb that was slain is the virgin-born son of God who is crucified, dead, buried raised from the dead after three days, and those in the Old Testament then were saved on the basis of credit which came due at the cross. We're saved in retrospect as we look backwards at what Jesus did on the cross. But the bottom line, in the Old Testament, they were saved by coming to God with, and this is what David is pointing out in the psalm, you come to God and enter his presence With absolute, empty hands, admitting your need, coming to God, trusting in his grace, and anticipating him to save us. That's exactly how Rahab was saved in Joshua chapter 6. It's exactly the same way as Cornelius was saved in in Acts 12. Joshua 6 to Acts 12. And verse 6 couldn't say it any clearer. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So the person with this kind of heart is the person who repents, turns in faith to the one true God and bows before the sovereign God. And what's going to happen is this kind of turning, this kind of repentance will end in a new creation, a new heart And so that new heart, that new creation is going to look differently. That person with a new heart is going to begin to act different, look different and it will display itself in clean tongue or a holy tongue, you know, clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, it's it's the whole book of Galatians. We all know as believers you're saved by grace and by, by grace alone. Faith in God, grace alone. But True saving faith is never alone. True saving faith will transform a person. If they're born again, they'll be transformed and their lives will begin to look different. Now, I didn't say instantaneously. When we're saved, now we'll get to this in verses 7, 8, 9, 10. When our lives are transformed by God, instantly, instantly, we're just like Jesus Christ. Positionally, we're just like Jesus Christ. Now, our, the sanctification process takes time where we become in practice what we are already uh, in position. Okay, but it will begin to reveal itself in uh, clean hands, pure hearts, holy tongues. And you think, this is the, such is the generation who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This exact, this exact same thing is communicated through the major prophets, through the minor prophets. Isaiah says the exact same thing. Micah says the exact same thing. So let's get out of the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. This is precisely what John the Baptist said in John the, ba- in John, in the, in John the Baptist chapter 3. No, in, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, uh, when, when the Pharisees came to him, You know, and the Pharisees were the epitome of religiosity. They were the epitome of external religion. Remember, they came to John the Baptist, and you know what John the Baptist called them? He said, you brood of vipers. You you heritage of Satan. He said, bring forth repentance in keeping, change. bring forth change in keeping with repentance because John the Baptist understood that merely baptizing somebody externally doesn't get to the heart of the person. So then John the Baptist says, do not say we're children of Abraham. God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. So what John the Baptist was doing was recovering this very fundamental doctrine that that David talked about over and over and over throughout the Psalms basically, this doctrine had been lost. And of course, the Pharisees perverted it and the Sadducees perverted it. John the Baptist is trying to recover it, basically saying that a person's external righteousness is absolutely totally useless. And I don't know what some of you are saying. You're saying, Jeff, but you know hey, I think this is sounding a little legalistic to me. I mean you're talking the Old Testament, You're talking Old Testament prophets. You're talking Old Testament major prophets. You're talking Old Testament minor prophets. And Jeff, I don't know if you know this, but John the Baptist really was the last of the prophets. So what about that? And I said, well, let's just listen to what Jesus had to say. Jesus is really saying the same thing. He said in Matthew 23, verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that, purpose clause, Hena clause, that the outside may also be clean. In other words, he's saying when you deal with a heart, when you deal with that, there are going to be changes that will take place. And I know some of you who are really astute, some of you are incredible Bible scholars, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, Jeff, you're talking Old Testament, you're talking John the Baptist, now you're talking Jesus, but Jeff... The church really wasn't formed until Acts chapter 2, so if you're an ultra-dispensationalist, you would say, you know, you you can't really shove that on us. It's not applicable for me. So all I would say was, well, what about the Apostle Paul? What he has to say. Paul said in Romans 2.38, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision, listen to this, those are the external circumcision, circumcision is of the heart. It's by the spirit. And that's why he says in Romans 9, 7, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, but through Isaac, the child of faith, that's where your descendants will be named. He says the same thing in the book of Galatians. Circumcision is nothing. It requires a new birth. It requires a new heart. That's the point David is making. Uh, He's just saying, the clean hands and the pure hearts and the truthful holy tongue uh, manifest something that has happened not externally, but internally. So this is powerful. Folks, listen. This was so powerful in David's day. It was powerful in Isaiah's day. It was powerful in, in Micah's day. It was powerful in John the Baptist's day, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. It's powerful in our days, too, uh, that basically... If there's going to be some sort of change in my life, if I'm going to enter in the presence of God, something has got to radically happen internally for me to be a different person, to be uh, what Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Something's got to happen if you're to be hopeful of clean hands, pure heart, holy tongue. And I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there thinking, but Jeff, you don't understand. Uh, My parents were Christians, and I was raised in a Christian home. Not only was I raised in a Christian home, I've I've been a Christian as as far as I can remember. I was sprinkled as a baby. I was confirmed when I was 12. I was baptized when I was 17. And I was married under the sacrament of the cross. I was even married in, in in a church with a steeple. I genuflected. I bowed before the cross. But the point... That's great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but the question is, have you been born anew? Born again? Have you come to the point where God has absolutely broken your heart? That's that impoverished spirit that causes you to beat your breast and say, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." That's what happens for a human being to do something that only God can do in their lives, and that's to break their heart. Listen, the distance between a person's knees and the ground is is as wide as the Grand Canyon. There is no hope for anyone ever to fall on their knees and beat their breasts unless God calls them, unless God touches them, unless God by His Holy Spirit Turns their soul upside down. That'll never happen without that. And that's the only hope I have for clean hands, a pure heart, and a tongue that is holy. All the other stuff, all the other stuff that Paul just liquidates in those first couple of verses are like Paul would use these words in Philippians 3.8. He calls it dung. Isaiah, in chapter 64, verse 6, calls them filthy rags. All the religious mumbo-jumbo that we think uh, that is helping us, you know, bridge the gap. He says it's just not going to do it. So remember, this Messianic psalm does three things. Verse 1 and 2, pretty tough. He says, all the externals, whether it be your class, your sect, all, all your effort, your religious affiliations, he says it's worth nothing. Now the next few verses, in verses three to six, he underscores it's got to happen through an internal change. And it's gonna that internal change will expose itself in clean hands, pure heart, holy tongue. So but we listen to that, we read that, and, and people, I, I'm sure people, especially in David's day now, we're looking backwards and we have a little more comfort here, but back then they were going, oh my, that's what it's gonna take to get into the presence of God? Clean hands, but, but Jeff, that list that you went through, that's where I am. I, I don't have the kind of clean hands it's gonna take to get into the presence of God. I don't have that, that kind of uh, holy sp- soul um, that, that's gonna, that's going to do it I, I don't have that. I sure don't have the kind of tongue I'm supposed to have. so what about me I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to even have a prayer to get into the presence of God and now David has you exactly where. He wants you. That's the whole purpose of the law, to drive us to our knees. And now these last few verses, this is why it's called a messianic psalm. He's going to point us to the only one that can give us hope. And those are these last few verses. And he shows us how Jesus is this answer. And he starts out, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in so this verse answers the challenge of verse three who will ascend to the hill of the lord who will stand in his holy place and so david is prophetically saying that the gates of celestial glory will go up at the presence of this one now just a little hindsight in in the ancient orient Cities had gates, You know, all the cities were enclosed in gates, and the gates were on hinges that would open and close to let people in and out. Unless there was a conquering king, so that a con- whenever a king would conquer a city, the king with his subjects would go in and the city that was conquered would not just open the gates, they would take the gates off, up and off the hinges. And that would show everyone, not only to the conquering king, but also to their subjects and to the town that's being conquered, that this conquering king has access to the entire city. They have the keys of the city, so to speak, and with the the gates off of the hinges, they have total access, and the gates will never be shut to this conquering king. Verse 7b says, the heavens heavens gates are going to be opened up to the Messiah. He's going to go boldly in that the king of glory may come in. Do you see what he's calling the Messiah? He's calling him the king of glory is going to go into the city. That's who's going to be able to, 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 to ascend to the hill of the Lord and who's going to stand in his holy place that the Messiah is is not an angel. The Messiah is not just a man. He is the monarch of heavenly glory. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the anointed one. This is the one who's gonna come in. He is the only way by which we can get into the presence of God, who's gonna put an end to all religion, to all philosophy, to all politics. He's the Messiah, the king. He is the word of God come made flesh He's the very righteousness of God, and then he answers the question: Well, who then is this King of Glory? Verse eight. That sounds exactly like the guy who told to John, "Where is he that I might worship him?" Well, this is the only one that could ever get you into the hill of the Lord, into the presence of God. Well. Who is he? Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? Uh, is he an Arab? Is he an American? Well, what's, what's his pedigree? Is he from New York? Is he from Minneapolis? Is he from Kuwait? Is he from Paris? And verse 8 tells us, don't miss it, this is not a mere man. This person who can get you in, the one that the gates will be taken off the hinges, is God himself. Verse 8, who's the king of glory? He says, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord. Or in other words, you could say, it's I am. I am who is strong and mighty. The I am, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? It's Yahweh. It's the I am of hosts. He is a king of glory. So the Bible repeats itself over and over because it's intensifying, showing itself dramatically. David is saying, who is the one that can get into the very presence of God? And he says, it's the Messiah. It is Messiah. The I am. It's the Lord Yahweh Himself, and He says this two different times. It's the King of Glory. He says that two different times. It is the it is the Yahweh. It is the I am of Sabaoth. It's it's the Lord of the host of God's armies. This is the one, the conquering King, the conquering the Lord of Sabaoth. It, it's the most uh, beautiful term, or the highest title of deity, the Lord of hosts. He is the one who enters. Into the city. He is the one that can lead us into the city. This one general can enter into the presence of God along with those who trust in him. This is the Messiah. He provides the way. He is the only one who can provide the way for us to enter into the presence of God. This is why the angel of the Lord, remember at Christmas time, the angel of the Lord, this is the one who announced to the shepherds in Luke 2, the angel said to them, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All. Remember verse 1 and 2? It's not what country you're from. He made everybody. Acts 17, same thing. He'll be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the I Am. Or again in Matthew chapter 123, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Folks, Jesus is God. This is why you get to in the gospels, you get to Matthew chapter um, 21. Verse 15, remember when Jesus went into the temple, he cleansed the temple. He overthrew everything in the temple, and when Jesus finally got through, there was only one thing standing in the temple. You know what it was? Jesus. He's the only thing standing in the temple himself because Jesus is deity. And the four gospels establish the fact that Jesus is the son of man who is God. That's why Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen God. He says, I and the Father am one. Well, if Jesus really is God, if Jesus really is the one by which we can enter in to the presence of God, if he really is, then can he raise people from the dead? That's why when you read the gospels, he says, Tabitha, arise. Lazarus come forth. Well, if he really is God, can he walk on water? Absolutely he can walk on water. Can he control the seas? And he commands the wind and the waves to be still. Well, could he command me to walk on the water? Well, just ask Peter. Can he cause fish to jump out of the ocean into a net so many that it would cause the boat to sink? Absolutely. Can you throw in a unbaited hook and catch fish. Jesus can do it. Can this man die by crucifixion? Can he get stuck in the side with a lance, pronounced dead by a professional Roman executioner? Can he get bound with 120 pounds of grave cloths, put into a tomb for three days, and then get up? Not only can he get up, he can go through 120 pounds of grave and not just walk out. He can go through a stone and then he can appear to over 500. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. There is only one person who could ever do that. So the question is, Jeff Gilmore, are you going to go to heaven? I absolutely know that I'm going to go to heaven. Oh, how can you be so arrogant? How can you know for sure? It's because I can tell you with assurance how I can know. It's because when Jesus Christ, when the Messiah went through those gates, the gates were removed from the hinges. He has absolutely permanent access. And when I put my faith and my trust in Jesus, my Lord and my Savior, not because of my own clean hands or clean heart or, or holy tongue, it's because I knew that the only way I could have access was by trusting in his completed work entering into the city through my Yahweh of the hosts of Sabaoth. In other words, I've been converted and, well, Jeff, are, are your hands clean? Is your heart pure? Is your tongue holy? I said, well, I look at that now, and I think, little by little, day after day, my prayer is that, when, and when I relinquish control to the Holy Spirit, there are gonna be some changes. And I would, I would challenge you, just maybe over this next week, uh, to look at, take those three things, take your heart, take uh, your tongue, Um, Your hands. Look at those and say, Jesus, are you helping me? Am I trusting your Holy Spirit to help my hands be a little cleaner, my tongue to be a little bit more holy, Uh, my heart to be a little bit more pure? So you might want to just use that and just say, Jesus, help me. You've given me your Holy Spirit to dwell within me nothing 's mine i 'm one hundred percent yours, so will you begin to make a difference in my life with the way I treat people with the way I treat my wife, with the way I treat my kids, with the way I treat my neighbors, the way I share my resources will, will you make a difference in my in my life and I have that security so the the question is, have you trusted in the king of glory that's that 's the question Well, let me pray first and um is that it one more that's right we have one more song i'm going to pray and then we have one we have one more song okay let me let me pray father uh psalm 24 shows us jesus and we are so glad it's wonderful to know that you are our sovereign god and you have put to flight all of man's religions all of his external righteousness there is but one who has been given the keys of the city, and that one was born in Bethlehem, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, dead, and buried. The one who is resurrected from the grave, Father, we come to you by your grace, not, not just short of change. Uh, we're, we're, we don't come to you just in need of a spiritual tune-up or, or just a makeover. God, uh, we come as paupers, hungering, thirsting for righteousness with our knees to the ground, beating upon our breasts. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're here this morning and if you've never made that step of faith, just bowing your knees to the ground and putting your, your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you, I just challenge you to take that step now. Talk to Doug. Talk to me after. Uh, uh, other people uh, give them an opportunity to share this wonderful good news uh, with you oh God you alone have our praise you alone have our adoration um, and we through you can stand boldly in your presence and uh, we are thankful that heaven's gates are open to the son of God we bless you our redeemer we praise you we adore you forever and ever because of him in whose name we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.